Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Today, I'll be talking with Susan Kaiser Greenland, who developed the Inner Kids Mindful Awareness Program. She also teaches secular mindful awareness practices to children around the world. Her book is Mindful Games, Sharing Mindfulness and Meditation with Children, Teens, and Families. I am here with Susan Kaiser Greenland, whose new book, Mindful Games, Sharing Mindfulness and Meditation with Children, Teens, and Families, is number one on Amazon books about meditation. Is that correct, Susan? Today it is. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. I can't believe it. That is so fantastic. Obviously, it happened organically, but do you massage that? You mean in my mind? (laughs) Did you make this happen with mind control? (laughs) Mind control. Well, no, I didn't make it happen in one way, but yeah, I did in another way, which is that I've got a lot of people that I've taught over the years, and I sent out an email that the book was coming out, and it's a very engaged and an active email list. And then things that we don't know is that Amazon actually has an algorithm that if a book is moving at a certain amount and is new, they discount prices. Uh And when that happens, since most of the people who are on my list are schools or clinicians who buy multiple copies, I sent out another thing and I said, look at what you've done. It's your momentum that got this price drop. So if you want to buy multiple copies, this is the time. Mm -hmm. So then that happened. And then I've got a couple of really wonderful friends who happen to have big megaphones Mm -hmm. who also shouted out about it. Well, this is why we have Trump as a president, I guess, right? It's all been social media. Mm-hmm. And because we have Trump as a president, we all need your book right now to calm ourselves. And I did find it extremely helpful in calming myself because oh, I have, have been having panic attacks. No, you really have been having panic attacks? I honestly did have one serious one where if I had been like 21 years old, I would have gone to the emergency room because I wouldn't have known what was happening. But because I'm much older than that, I recognized what was happening and I was able to breathe my way out of it. Wow. But it was like physically painful, like I couldn't move. I hurt all over. And this was related to the election? Absolutely, yes. But enough about me. No, no. no. That's exactly (laughs) it. And you said you were able to breathe your way through it, right? Yes, exactly. Because I had learned through yoga, which touches on meditation. Taking yoga is not like studying meditation, but it's kind of a good beginning, a doorstep. And they're very complimentary. Yes. Well, let's back up just a minute. I know that you were, in another life, a corporate lawyer, and that was for a significant amount of time. Yeah, almost 20 years. 20 years. Tell us about your journey from that career to your current career as an expert on meditation, particularly regarding children. I was one of those lawyers who really loved my job. I liked being a lawyer, but it was a stressful job. And I ended up, with the help of my husband, turning to meditation to help me manage stress. We're going through a little bit of a rough patch. There were some health problems in the family. And so... I tried it, and I've got to tell you, it did not come easily to me. The first time that I sat down to practice meditation, I lasted for a couple minutes, and then I went running from the room. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't tolerate looking inside and the feelings that came up. 
And so it took me quite a while to find meditation as a refuge rather than just a very difficult experience to endure. But I did, and then I found it helped. And then we ended up moving to Los Angeles at the time I started. I was in New York, and I started studying with some teachers here. And we had young kids, and I wondered then whether or not it would help kids in the same way that it helped adults, because at that time there was no work going on with kids. Lots and lots of people now who were in this mindfulness and kids movement started in the same way. They had their own kids and they thought, well, let's see how we can adapt these things for kids. So I did that. One thing led to another. I started volunteering at the Boys and Girls Club, volunteered in a couple schools, wrote my first book about it. And after that, I was very, very lucky. People asked me to travel all around and train trainers in how to work with kids And from there came the second book. Well, I can say because I've met your kids who are grown up now that they are both complete maniacs and felons. No, I'm just kidding. They are (laughs) wonderful kids. Thank you, but they do not meditate. And I think that's actually a really good lesson for parents who are hoping that their kids will meditate or hoping that meditation will help change their kids. My kids do not meditate, but they have completely integrated the universal themes and the kind of self-regulation techniques that mindfulness and meditation teach. Recently, now one is 25 and the other is 22, both of them have told me, as they on their own now are out in the world starting to see what meditation is, oh, wow, mom, we did that. I never knew that was mindfulness. I never knew that was meditation. Mm -hmm. We would take them to places to formally meditate and they would roll their eyes. They would tell funny stories. That didn't fly. But Teaching them these themes and these life skills and just simple practices of stopping and taking a couple breaths, broadening your perspective and looking at the world in a different way, that they have integrated. And I'm so proud of them. Neither of them are reactive kids, adults, I guess. Absolutely. That is true. I can verify that. (laughs) You were talking about your beginning meditation and you said it was too scary. You ran from the room. Was that because... When you were looking inside, at that moment was so scary because, as you say, there were health issues, or was it separate? Was it just simply the act of examining yourself in that way? Was it situational, or was it not? I think it was me. I now have worked with so many people who have had similar experiences that they just couldn't tolerate meditating at first. But for me, I've always struggled with anxiety, and I do to this day. And so, for me, it was a real visceral issue of it wasn't that my mind was racing or I was having kind of crazy thoughts. I had so much pent up kind of nervous energy. It was just really hard for me to sit still. So I couldn't. And I actually really did go flying off that cushion. Since that time, if I met somebody now in my same situation, I would never encourage them to start practicing with a sedentary practice. You can start with walking, you can start with moving, you can sway from side to side. There's so many other things you can do to start developing systematically the capacity to be able to sit and be with those difficult emotions. One of the great things about your book is that, because when I first heard about children and mindfulness, of course, I just thought, children are maniacs. They can't be mindful. It's their job to be maniacs. But you do have many exercises in which the children can move, and that is interesting. And then also, there's both for children and adults— the idea of keeping your spine very straight, but relaxing everything else. And I'm kind of interested in that idea because why not just relax the whole body? Why is it important to keep one thing super straight 
rather yeah, than relaxing. You don't want it stiff like a board, but you do want to be relatively up. And the reason why is because what we're trying to do here is we're trying to balance the qualities of being alert and tranquil or alert and calm. If we get too calm, people just fall asleep. If we're too alert, then we're so tight that we really can't relax and just rest with whatever's happening right now. Because mm -hmm. ultimately, that's where we want to get. We want to get to the point that we have a certain amount of alertness and relaxation around all these difficult feelings that are bubbling up inside of us at any given moment. And when we're able to just be with them and kind of relax around them, then we give them enough space, they tend to run their course. Mm -hmm. And that's how the transformation starts to happen and that also seems to be how the different changes happen from the science standpoint with respect to brain development or the nervous system. So interesting. I think my first taste of meditation was, again, it was in yoga. My teacher, Nancy Romano, I'm sitting in a position that hurts. And she says, breathe into where it hurts. But she also says, life hurts. Just endure it. You have no choice. And that comes with yoga, that idea. And I think that's helpful for meditation. It's helpful, but it's a little trickier with meditation, especially if you're working in a world of trauma, because we don't want to re-traumatize people. Mm -hmm. So that theory, I like to think of it as a moth coming closer to a flame. You think of the moth as being drawn to that flame, which is kind of the pain or the discomfort or whatever's happening. And that moth will get in just as close as it can. And then when it gets too hot, it darts back away. Mm -hmm. But then once it cools off, it comes back again. And so from a meditation perspective, I'm not a big believer in white knuckling through things. What you do when you're having those feelings is you just try to relax. And if they're just too much to be able to hold, then some kind of movement. But relaxing into them and staying with them as long as you can really keep your concentration and not either flip out or dissociate or really just move away from it. Well, another thing that can happen to the moth is that it can actually get so close to the flame that it burns up and dies, right? It can. And, and speaking of that, there was a form of therapy that was popular, I'd say about 20 years ago when I really needed therapy. And it was, what's the worst that can happen? It was like, you're in the therapist's office and they say, What's the worst that could happen? And what I did with that was I said, well, I could lose my job. I could lose my apartment. I could become homeless. And then I could die dirty on the street. <laughs> and actually, a lot of those things did happen because I got into that loop. Yeah. And you talk about getting into these thought loops and how to disrupt them yeah. and how meditation. And kids, of course, get into these things Sunday night, and they have to go to school on Monday. Mm -hmm. And it's terrifying. And we all remember that. But that meditation can interrupt those loops. Yeah. In order to be able to interrupt the loops, you've got to have a couple of things. One is you have to be aware of them, and you can't get carried away with them. And part of the reason we get carried away is because our nervous system is kicking in. And so one of the amazing things about mindfulness and meditation, and yogis have been doing this for centuries, is that they learn how to use their breath to be able to slow down and you know, back off of an overly excited nervous system. But in order to do that, you have to notice it. So you notice when you're starting to feel revved up, and then you move your attention away from what you're thinking about into a physical sensation, like the movement of breath, 
or moving, like walking, just feeling one step after another, or to the task at hand, or sometimes people find mantras and counting and that sort of thing to help. But the real key is that when you start to feel yourself get revved up in your mind into a loop, you notice it, and then you move your attention away from thinking about what you're thinking, because that's just going to rev you up more into a present moment experience. And that has the effect of de-escalating this spiral up and calming us down. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now it's time for this week's book recommendation. For this week's book recommendation, we have Gustavo Turner in the studio. Gustavo's the digital editor for the Los Angeles Review of Books. Hi, Kate. Hi, Gustavo. What do you have to recommend? We thought we would do something a little different because the Noble Academy expanded a little bit on the definition of literature by first deciding that Bob Dylan needed to be the Literature Nobel Prize winner and then having the ceremony last week. So we thought we'd talk about a couple of record albums. Oh, great. Interesting. I want to talk about two albums that came out around September 11th, 2001. Bob Dylan's Love and Theft and Leonard Cohen's 10 New Songs. Bob Dylan's Love and Theft came out on September 11th, 2001. Leonard Cohen's 10 New Songs came out about a month later or so. When September 11th happened, I remember that day. I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I woke up and I heard what had happened. And I was in it days. And I decided to go on with my day. And I went to Tower Records in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I bought the Dylan album the day it came out. And of course, I didn't listen for like a week or 10 days because we had other preoccupations uh, at the time. So tell me about those records for you uh, now. They're fantastic. I think that they're some of my favorite albums of theirs. They put out a lot of records, of course, both Dylan and Cohen, but Love and Theft to me is the one that I always go back to now. It's a record that I've been listening to nonstop for the last 15 years, and it has gotten better with time. And I think a lot of longtime Dylan fans feel the same way, that that's a real turning point. People thought at first that Time Out of Mind from 1997 was when he had changed into a new style, but Love and Theft is really something else. And Leonard Cohen's 10 New Songs is very unusual. It's a record that he wrote with a collaborator, Sharon Robinson, and it has a very different sound from other things that he has done. And the songs, especially when he's been doing them live in the last three tours before he passed away, are just fantastic, moving love songs that go back to Greek poetry and his own experience with Buddhism in a very, very adult way. So those are the two records I wanted to recommend. I feel that because people were so worried with what was happening with the world, they kind of slip under the radar. And since they continue being prolific and mm. doing so much, people having really like sat down and gave them their worth. Mm. Maybe now when people are worried again about the world, it's a good time to revisit these two albums. Yeah. In fact, the other thing that I thought about on September 11th was about Leonard Cohen's song, The Future, from 1992, which says, bring me Stalin and St. Paul, bring me back the Berlin Wall. I've seen the future, brother, and it's murder. 
and I feel that both of them are very political poets, but not explicitly so. They just have it in there. So can you remind us of the album's names again? Yes. Bob Dylan's Love and Theft from 2001 and Leonard Cohen's 10 New Songs from 2001. Check it out. Thank you. Thanks. And now, back to our interview with Susan Kaiser Greenland, the author of Mindful Games. In your book, you say that you knew that you were starting to succeed in meditation when it moved from a chore to something that you look forward to doing. I thought about that, and I thought about, for me, the key, I wouldn't say that I'm a great meditator, but let's say I dabble in it, and I think the key for me was something you talk about in your book, too, once you realize that you're not trying to control your thoughts, because you can't anyway, so get that out of your mind. You're not trying to control your thoughts. And once I was able to do that, I was able to take steps toward meditation. I think that's a huge thing it's, to realize. It's huge. You not only don't try to control them anymore, you give them a whole lot of space. And that requires the physical relaxation. So that's where a lot of people get caught up, is that even if they intellectually are not trying to control their thoughts, they start to tighten up. And then as a result, everything constricts. But the more thoughts you have, the more if you can just move into the exhale, give yourself a whole lot of space, and then look at it all just happening with some curiosity and sense of humor. It's really hilarious what we do in our minds. And then what happens is it all does tend to settle. That's another way that we can call a nervous system, but that takes strong attentional training and Young kids don't have the developmental capacity. But it's funny, Lori, because one of the things I know, having so many writers in my life, is that writers often have the hardest time of anybody I've ever worked with learning to meditate, except possibly lawyers. And it's because your capacity to attend is so well honed. You've got that zooming in ability, and that muscle is so strong. But what's missing or what isn't the compensatory muscle that isn't there is that idea of relaxing and being able to broaden the lens and just let it all kind of bubble well, up. You have that great quote from David Foster Wallace. Potter. Story of the fish. So there's two fish swimming through the water and they're just having a great old time. And an older fish comes by and says, how's the water? And they keep swimming by. And then one fish looks at the other and said, what the hell is water? And that is so true. And it's also especially true when working with kids. I had a lot of resistance when I first started working with kids from teachers and educators who were big in the world of development. And they were saying, these kids just can't possibly understand these Right. concepts you're teaching. I would say, well, most of the adults I know can't understand them either. It doesn't require a conceptual understanding. It's like, what is water? Once you feel it, you can kind of slide into it. But in order to teach it to kids, it has to be fun. That's just unnecessary. Yeah. And so you have a lot of exercises in here. Actually, I think would be fun for adults to do as well. But kids find these fun, right? A lot of them find them fun. Some of them roll their eyes. They are kids after all. But I've got to tell you, I've got so much luck with parents who are very resistant to meditation, but they think, oh, these are little kids' games. 
I can try those. And then they find that a shift happens and they start to understand what all the excitement is about around meditation. Can you tell me just some of the kids' responses, like Art Linkletter, like things that the kids have said about it? Uh, Yeah. The story that we hear time and time again is that we have all sorts of these different things that we use in the classroom with kids where if something as far as letting the glitter settle or ringing a bell to pause and take a breath or singing these songs and the number of kids who come back and report that their parents were in the middle of a fight or somebody was all stressed out driving in traffic and the little child pipes up from the back seat and says, hey, will you stop and feel your breathing or sings a song? Mm-hmm. And Another really profound story for me was pretty early on when I was working at the Krieger Center here, the UCLA Early Care Childhood, and there was a boy who had a shadow, and he had a diagnosis, and his mental health professionals had been trying over and over again to help him use some of these mindfulness-based calming tools. What do you mean he had a shadow? A shadow means that he had an adult always with him in the classroom to just kind of help him stay on task and manage his emotions. And He was unable to participate in the circle, so we had a couch behind the circle, because it's a preschool classroom, all these comfortable chairs. And so he and his shadow would just hang out on the couch behind, and and I thought it was lovely that he was part of the community, and I thought that that was very important, but I didn't get a sense that he was picking up anything from the actual instruction that was happening to the other kids. So he goes into his mental health professional and he starts telling her all these different exercises and doing them with her, even though he was not doing them with the kids. And the therapist said, you know, I've been trying to get you to do these things for years. What's up? And he said, well, I always thought it was for sick kids before, but now I see that anybody can do it. Uh So that's the kind of stuff that happens very, very early on. Right. Well, I congratulate you because I know you really are a pioneer in this field. It is a little bit counterintuitive to think of it. And you say that you had young children at the time, and so that was part of it. But I also wonder about kind of addressing yourself as when you were a child, like if that also has been part of the development of your practice. Yeah, as a child and as an adult, as I mentioned earlier on, I've had jobs and careers that required a great deal of competency, and I've been a lawyer and now this, but I've always had to really manage some anxiety that has never completely gone away. And that started very, very young. And so what is it that they say? You teach what you need to learn and you work on that. So yeah, of course, it was as much of a self-exploration for me as it was, in fact, more so, I would say, at least at first, than it was for me to try to really help my kids, although I wanted that. And that's what we see over and over again, the number of parents who are unable to practice meditation on their own, and then a child comes home with a diagnosis or is struggling in school, and even if the parents are resistant and think this is ridiculous, they will do something even as crazy as meditation if they think it's going to help their kids. And then that's how so many people get into it. Well, we happen to have someone in the studio today whose name coincidentally is Seth Greenland. And Seth's going to join us. Have you met Susan, Seth? You look vaguely familiar. (laughs) These two have been married for a while is the truth. So were you any help or were you a hindrance while she was writing this book? That is really an excellent (laughs) question. Susan, why don't you answer that? Was I a help or a hindrance? 
Oh, Seth is an incredible help. I'm very, very lucky to be married to a writer. I am not a natural writer, and I, I couldn't have done it without him. Oh, well, in terms of the book, I would say, sure, I'm a keen editorial eye, but I thought you meant, was I helpful in Susan's development as a meditator? And I would say, sure, I gave her a reason to have to meditate. <laughs> is, is that true, Susan? Let's do a marriage counseling <laughs> session. Well, in any marriage, and now Seth is meditating too, probably because I'm giving him plenty of reason to learn well, to the, meditate. The funny thing is, in Susan's origin story as a meditator, I was the one who took her to the Zen Center in New York and said, you have to calm down. You have to learn how to meditate. Uh -huh. And that was the session that Susan ran out of with her hair on fire. And of course, mm -hmm. later, she turned into a professional meditator, and I was not a natural meditator at all. After the Zen Center, I did not pursue it for a long time, but I saw the great things it was doing for Susan, and Susan actually helped me and taught me a lot about it. Now I am a, a semi-regular practitioner because of you. And Susan, I have to say, the writing in the book is quite good, and you should be proud of it. It's very good. It's very readable. It's graceful. It's economic. It really does what it needs to do and more. Thank you. It so, does not come easily for me. It doesn't. I don't think it comes easily for anyone, it does though, not, does it? No. I mean, really, it's like every single time it's just horrible and hard. Well, over the course of two books, you've really turned into a good writer. Thank you, guys. And I appreciate it. I don't plan on making it my third career. Do you have a third book? Oh, I hope not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but then I hoped I didn't have a second. You, know, you never know what's going to happen. But honestly, it, it's really hard for me. And I really look forward to getting back on the floor with kids. But I'm also so excited to have this out. And in April, a set of activity cards are coming out that I did with Annika Harris, who's been a wonderful, wonderful support and help as an editor in this project. Uh, and is she your editor at this house? No, she's been working with me for years, teaching kids practice, okay. teaching kids meditation. And then she nudged me quite a while. I really hadn't planned on writing this book. I was kind of done with that part of it. And she nudged me to get the cards out because the cards, which will come out in April, are things that parents can just put in their purse and grab out and say, okay, right now we're going to play TikTok like a clock. Mm -hmm. And her kids are young where mine aren't anymore. And so we started on that, and then she edited those with me, and then she edited the games in the book and just helped me in ways that you just can't even imagine the many different ways that she's helped me get this project together. So so whether there's another book or not, I don't look that far ahead. Right now, I'm just really delighted this is out and delighted to kind of get back into, I'm very excited about some new games I want to develop. So you work with kids, but you also train teachers of kids. Is that correct? Yeah, I worked with kids almost exclusively before the first book came out. And then between the first book and this one, I was asked to travel and start training teachers. And that's when I realized that we really needed something like this, which is really a very step-by-step -step explanation of how to practice, which includes the different themes that we're teaching, the teaching objectives, and that sort of thing. I started to realize that a lot of teachers were able to lead a game, but they didn't understand what their teaching objective was or mm -hmm. what was the underlying theme. That would be very important to understand. Yeah. Too. But you've done a lot of traveling. I uh, have. International traveling as well as... Yes. Where have you gone with Oh, that? let's see. I've been to Mexico quite a bit. I've been to Singapore. I've taught in Wales. I've taught wow. 
I've just taught all over the place and then all over in the U.S. too, but I'm going to stay much closer to home now. There's a lot of people who are really excited about getting out there and traveling. And I mean it when I say I'm very much excited about this new set of games I want to develop. And I'm going to be working in a school in Venice starting in January doing that. Which school is that? Westminster. And can you tell us anything about the games? I can tell you exactly about the games. There's a set of practices called Lojong, which are practices, compassion practices that come out of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And all of my work comes out of classical practices and secularized. And these practices are slogans. So I'm going to be adapting those slogans for kids. And then Kristen Neff has this fantastic self-compassion program. I was teaching with her in Dallas recently, and she asked me to adapt some of that stuff for kids. So I'll be doing those two things because it's interesting. The Tibetan practices are also compassion-based practices. It's kind of impossible to do it without compassion, right? You talk a lot in your book about not having judgment when you meditate, and that means forgiving yourself that makes me think about that great scene in Breaking Bad where Jesse goes to a group therapy and it's like, forgive yourself, but he's just killed someone. This was an interesting moral quandary. Yeah. Have you ever dealt with a murderer? I hope not. <laughs> you know, you never know. There's you so many people who cross your path, but I don't know. But if I were to deal with a murderer, I do think that this would help. And I think our new president-elect could benefit from some of this practice, too, because the beautiful thing about secular meditation and mindfulness practice is it's kind of a one-two punch. The first thing it does is it teaches you to notice when your nervous system is going into overdrive, and it gives you specific strategies to bring it back. Because when our nervous systems are in overdrive, we really can't think clearly. We don't respond flexibly. We really can't listen to each other. We can't be open to points of view. Right. So it teaches that, and that's what we see a lot of in this early phase of mindfulness out in the schools or in corporations is just mindfulness as stress reduction. But then the beautiful thing is once you learn that, then you can really open up your mind to all different parts of the worldview, which include compassion, which include kindness, and listening to each other and, you know, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. So if I were to have a murderer in front of me, I guess that's what I would... Or your president-elect. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's all just take a deep sigh, <laughs> a deep breath. Susan Kaiser Greenland, Mindful Games is the book. It's a wonderful book, whether you have children or not. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Lori. And thanks, Seth, for coming back. It's thanks. so good to see you. Great to see you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. Today's poem is by Gerard Manley Hopkins one of the great names for a manly poet. He was a Victorian poet. He's famous for Invictus, My Head is Bloody But Unbowed, very manly. But today's poem is called Spring and Fall, and it is read by actor Richard Thomas. Spring and Fall to a Young Child by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Margaret. Are you grieving over golden grove unleaving? Leaves like the things of man you with your fresh thoughts care for, can you? Ah, as the heart grows older, it will come to such sights colder by and by. Nor spare a sigh, the worlds of one would leaf meal lie. And yet you will weep and know why. Now no matter, child, the name. Sorrow's springs are the same. 
nor mouth had, no, nor mind expressed what heart heard of, ghost guessed. It is the blight man was born for. It is Margaret you mourn for. That was actor Richard Thomas reading the Gerard Manley Hopkins poem, Spring and Fall, written in 1880, probably in the spring or fall. Love that Richard Thomas in The Americans. Oh, yeah, he was really good in that, yeah. When I was a young academic, I had a chance to be in the Harvard Society of Fellows, which is the cushiest thing that could happen to you coming out of a PhD program. It was a two-year fellowship. I think you taught one course a year and otherwise just got to work on your work. I wanted it really badly. And I had no clothes. I was a poor graduate student and I was going to buy a jacket and a tie when I got to Boston. But my plane was late. And I ended up going into this dinner with Helen Vendler, the famous Harvard poetry critic, and the person who was going to decide whether I got this thing or not with the three other candidates that I was against. And I was the only one without a coat and tie on. And the first thing she said was, so tell us, Mr. Lutz, what is your favorite Gerard Manley Hopkins poem? And I had nothing. You know, I just had nothing. I had read him, but I had nothing. I just blah, 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 blah. And somebody else said, I'll tell you my favorite poem. And he went on and recited it. And I thought, okay, A, I'm not getting this, which in fact I did not. And B, I don't think I'm going to fit in here. That was like your Gary Johnson Aleppo moment. You had a brain freeze. (laughs) Exactly. We have come to the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Orleano, Alan Minsky, our producer and Questionable Moral Center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities. I'm Lori Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening. 